Welcome to Failed Architecture Breeze Blocks, where our editors share their thoughts on works in progress, urgent matters, and current happenings in architecture and spatial politics. My name is Charlie Clamos, an editor on Failed Architecture's Netherlands team. When the gig economy hit cities across the world in the early 2010s, gig companies promised flexible working hours to their contractors and on-demand ease to their customers. In reality, the companies and their algorithms have induced a monumental change in patterns of work and consumption, recomposing commercial districts in pursuit of more efficient last-mile delivery and invisibilizing deeply exploitative and often criminally underpaid labor practices. In a bid to understand this new form of algorithmic management, researcher Callum Kant took a job riding for Deliveroo, a food delivery startup founded in the UK in 2013 by Will Shu and Greg Orlovsky, which has since become one of the most prominent new gig companies. Riding for Deliveroo is also the title of a book that Callum wrote about his experiences and the subject of this two-part breeze block interview. This conversation involves a discussion of the workers' inquiry methodology and class composition analysis that inspired Callum's research, both of which draw on a remarkable history stretching all the way back to an obscure 1880 essay written by an equally obscure German philosopher. But first, we start with Callum offering a stirring description of what it's actually like to ride for Deliveroo, a job which forces its workers into a relationship with the city that is, by equal terms, both dangerous and exhilarating. It might be nice to talk about what it's doing to people's bodies, I suppose. There was this part where you were talking about it in very specific detail about the way that the delivery process occurs, at least in the hands of the of the rider. There's a certain unpredictability about whether or not you want to take a, a job. And then also there's, as you keep doing it, a repetitive process of learning the city and learning its uh, mysteries, in a sense, its shortcuts, its, its obstacles as well. And um, I don't know, I just thought it was one of my really favorite bits of the book was where you talked about it in terms of i remember crazy taxi the video game. yeah it is crazy taxi yeah yeah um yeah no it, please uh, i don't know um, if you want to just uh yeah talk through the process yeah for sure well i mean so in a shift you'd you'd go out of an evening and be like okay you'd probably have a number in your head i want to do this many deliveries i want to make this kind of money i've got these kind of hours to work you'd go out it, Often, I mean, when I was working, you'd go out and it'd be freezing cold. <laughs> you'd go out and want to start working straight away. But usually because you're heading out at like five or six, it's a little bit before demand has really picked up. You don't want to miss any of the initial surge, right? So you head out a little early and it's freezing cold and you start to get cold because you're just sat around and you sit at the bench, you chat with people, you hope that you've got enough battery in your lights and your phone because you've, in my case, I've been working all day and I'd only just been back at the flat for 20 minutes or something and come out again. You're probably quite hungry. And then suddenly you start getting notifications, right? And you have the app up and you just swipe, 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 swipe. You stick it on your bike and then bang, you're like, okay, I'm off to this restaurant. Once you're at that restaurant, at the time, this has now changed. It was only after I clicked the order, I'd be told where I was going. And the whole time you're trying to go as fast as you can. You're trying to save as much time as possible, but you're also trying not to exhaust yourself because you need to be keeping working for, so for a dinner shift, I'd be like, I wanna work three or four hours, right? So if I sprint everywhere, I'm gonna to be too knackered to work for the whole time. So I need to hit the maximum consistent intensity I'm gonna be able to maintain for that whole period. 
And there are these periods of very frustrating waiting where like you suddenly go from being very, very fast to the restaurant and then bang, you're waiting inside and you've got 10 minutes because the burger isn't ready and you're just sat there for 10 minutes unpaid. So it's this constant acceleration, deceleration, the constant search for spare seconds that you can pick up because this is the major impact of the peace wage, right? It's that you are doing the work intensification yourself. You are forcing yourself to go faster. Then there's these like wild spikes and dips in adrenaline as you come very close to buses and taxis and you, you're flying up a hill, you're flying down a hill. Someone tries to start a fight with you. You uh, get very angry because you're not making any money or you're like, oh my God, I'm making really good money. I need to make up for that terrible day last week and I need to do as many orders as possible. So it's like, it's quite a roller coaster. The guys who do it all the time must find a way to calm down. But I found myself very emotionally stressed by the whole labor process. And there were these moments of like intense enjoyment. Like I, I loved learning the city. It's one of the, really the best parts of it. It's for a start being on your bike, I love riding my bike. But um, it was it was getting to know like where I am at what time and what happens and seeing all the little back alleys and being like, oh, I want to get across the city this way. I can do it this way and be so much faster than Google Maps or whatever, right? Like beating Google Maps became quite an enjoyable thing. So the labor process is in a sense under-informed, overstressed, very fast, then sometimes very slow, then very fast again, very variable. And like, I'd say in the book, there are a couple of occasions where I I got in like full-on screaming matches with people, which is very much, I'm quite quite a chilled person. And um, there's that occasion of the guy who came along the bottle um, bottle of cider who like tried to start a fight with me from a van, which is like, I swear to God, 100% true that he just like leant out of van and screamed at me in the face, your mum's a cunt. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, fucking your mum's a cunt. And it's like bizarre. But that was the kind of emotional state you're in. You were like so amped. And I think that, yeah, that whole process, the whole experience of work, you're right on the edge because there's no security, right? It is precarious in a very, it's precarious in like an employment sense, but it's also kind of emotionally precarious because you don't know if your time's going to be wasted. You don't know how valued you are. You don't know how much you're going to make. So that double use of precarity is, I think, quite emotionally true. It's just, it's, it's shit. And when you have a bad shift, you feel like awful. When when there's no orders, you're just, why the hell am I here? What am I doing? I remember I did one Uber Eats shift where I made two pounds an hour. And I I tried to work for four hours on a Sunday and I did like three deliveries, four deliveries. And it was it was just pointless. It was like, what 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 am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it can have a really intense impact. So I think we underestimate people who've worked most of their life in relatively stable salary jobs, how time can feel when you're like your time can either be valuable or not. And there is this like constant variability in what your wage rate is. And I suspect that a lot of riders get very desensitized to it over time. Certainly that would be my impression from working with people and talking to people. But it's easy to overlook the fact that that's actually a deeply unpleasant aspect of the work. And particularly the health and safety stuff. I mean, I think it should be illegal for anyone to pay peace rates to people who work on the road because fundamentally, the faster they go, the more money they make. You're already paying them probably below minimum wage after costs. So they need to go really fast to try and make decent money. So basically, you're incentivizing people to helter-skelter around the city, taking all sorts of risks, mixing it up with taxis and buses and all the rest of it, just so that people can get their dinner faster. I mean, I mean, there's many elements of the delivery model that are morally reprehensible, right? But I really do wonder how Will Shu, the delivery boss, sleeps at night knowing that that payment system, that's what it does, right? That's the point of it. That's the whole, that you can't understand it from any other, like that's the point is to make you go fast so that you work really, really hard and you deliver food quickly. But the cost is huge. The um, 
thing you said about the, like excitement, but also the danger of it all, and talking about here as well, the fact that like it does encourage risk taking. To what extent do you think it it does turn you into, in a sense, an appendage of the algorithm or you know of the of the app? I don't know if I got the right. No, no, no. That's it. an appendage of the machine is what Mark says in Capital. You got it perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the relate. I mean. I guess the Marx reference gives it away, but I do think it's, it's a structural relationship where living labour becomes just the the moving bit on the end of dead labour, right? Or like the feeling bit on the end of dead labour. There are these huge constructions of capital that are basically funded by previous generations of labour that then just like flap us around like the moving bits on the end. And and this is the nature of, of alienation in a fundamental sense, right? You are turned from someone who has goals and objectives and uh, feelings into, for them, just a piece of u- uh, unit five, right? Like a bit of a commodity that's been bought and that now has to be controlled in such a way that it produces value. I wanted to say about that as well, like the description at the beginning of this, is it Will Shue or is it just a manager who's being surrounded by... Oh, it's Dan Warren. Dan, Dan Warren, that's it. Um, it, it is funny that it's a very striking moment of suddenly being faced with the consequence, the like human consequences of what would seem like to kind of bring things a bit full circle, the, the seamless cloud like nature of, of the way that the platform apps sort of present themselves as this kind of like smooth surface. And then there are these moments where suddenly that the bodies are sort of piling up in front of them, you know, and it's... And this happens all the time with platforms. Like, they run away from... So Stuart, obviously, the longest-running strike in the gig economy, been going on for ages, and um, Stuart set up, like, a feedback meeting where they wanted to meet with individual workers in Sheffield. And instead, a lot of them turned up with their union representatives and said, we want to talk to you with our union, right? Like, we want to talk together to you. And they ran away, right? Like there is this thing where like the actual existence of these workers is always quite an unpleasant shock, I think, to certain kinds of platform managers that, that really they want to they want them to remain dots on the map. They don't want them to have physical representation. And this is one of the interesting things about you could say one of the more subjective elements of platform labor protest is that it is hyper visible, right? Like the thing it does is people get together in huge convoys and like roll through the city. Like in Sao Paulo, there was one of these that was like a thousand workers strong that went across a major central bridge and like you see pictures of it, it's incredible. They do the same thing in Athens. They're not platform workers per se, but the Athens careers, right? These huge protests. And it reminds me a bit of like the demand that comes up again and again in like UVW organizing for justice, right? Or for like dignity, justice, these kind of words. There is a there is a an extent to which platform worker protest is about representing that we are real, we exist, we're not dots, we're not like, we refuse to be that and together we're powerful. There's like a reclaiming of that experience of being on the street and like travelling together as a powerful experience and it becomes like a festival procession rather than a boring strike rally and people are like yelling and lighting flares and shouting and all the rest of it. So I think there is that kind of carnivalesque element of the protest is a direct reaction to the fact that that's really what they don't want you to do, right? You are manifesting yourself in a way, like it reminds me of the French manifestation demonstration. It's like you're, you're showing that you are real and in person in a way that the app seems to sometimes deny. Maybe. Just moving on to something else. Um, the book starts with this outline of the worker's inquiry method that you used in your research. I was just wondering if you could explain what this method involves and a little bit about its history. 
For sure. The term workers' inquiry, we actually, we take it from Marx directly. Marx in 1880 wrote a, a survey for French workers. It was 101 questions long, incredibly lengthy. <laughs> I don't think we'd ever get away with sending that out now as, as academics. But 101 questions long survey that, that covered everything from like, what is the price of the goods you need to survive in your town to how big is the factory you work at, how many workers are employed there, what kind of machinery is used, is there a history of strike action? And this survey basically has kind of two goals within it, right? First of all, Marx says, in the absence of factory inspectors' reports, which is what he drew on for the writing of Capital, in order to understand the state of industry in France, we need workers to self-report on what's going on in their location. So there was a, a kind of a fundamental scientific need for more information to describe the state of French industry and to understand what conditions workers were facing. And so he wanted a kind of an auto-description, a, a direct self investigation of what was going on. He wanted workers to reach out and kind of tell him what was happening. There was also at the same time, a lot of these questions are written in a way that they kind of provoke increasingly more militant responses as it goes on. There's almost a didactic purpose as well as an informational purpose, whereby people's narratives about their own lives and their own work are one of the most effective ways of communicating about the reality of capitalism, right? Like if you want people to understand what is life like under this system, what's life like for other people, to what degree are emotions which I perceive to be purely personal, actually collective class expressions, all these kind of issues, then narratives are a really, really effective way of doing this. So the workers' inquiry tradition kind of starts with Marx in 1880 and then continues variously through other currents. You have the Johnson Forest tendency in the US, a group of dissident Trotskyists who kind of give up on being Trotskyists, move to Detroit and start organising with car workers there. CLR James is part of that tendency. And they do really incredible work around the, the car plants and writing narratives of what it's like to work in a factory. And there's one of those that's called the American Worker, which becomes incredibly influential in France and Italy, where actually in France it's first translated by a group of people who go on to found something called Socialism ou Barbarie, which is a kind of a dissident uh, Marxist group again there. And they do the same kind of thing at Renault plants, right? They're looking in conditions of production there. And then also in Italy, it, it becomes very influential on a group we call the workerists or the operaists, which are essentially a group of uh, Italian Marxists who perceive that there is a new industrial reality that workers in the, for instance, the, the Fiat Mia Fiori plant in Turin, these workers are somehow more militant than previously, but in, perhaps in a different way, right? Like when a deal gets announced between the unions and the management that they don't like, they riot and they attack the union's offices, right? So there's this kind of disconnect that they're very interested in, like what's producing this? And, that, you know, they come up with a whole series of things around migration from the South and the creation of new industrial processes and so on and so forth. But Essentially, that tradition carries on up to Notes from Below and, and ourselves presently and, and organisations like Viewpoint in the US and others. And we're really interested in, as the Notes from Below collective. I mean, I, I helped found Notes from Below a few years ago now. And um, our real intuition was that work has continued to change very rapidly. Particularly, you know, we've gone through this huge wave of deindustrialization that smashed the British workers' movement and then the creation of progressively more and more kinds of new workplaces. And myself... Um, Jamie Woodcock and a few others were very interested in what was the new reality facing the British working class, particularly after 2008, because with 2008, you saw the acceleration of a whole series of long-standing economic trends that really intensified. And there was a kind of a renewed capitalist assault on the working class that, that, for instance, things like precarity, right? Like precarity is now fundamentally the norm of the British economy. Non-union service work is the norm of the British economy. A lot of those trends took off 
in the period directly after 2008 and you know the repression of real wages all that kind of stuff that that's really that initial period and it goes alongside the remodeling of the state through austerity so all of which is to say that the works inquiry is fundamentally a method that's interested in investigating work from the worker's point of view that's fundamentally partisan that that says you know we're not just investigating this because we're abstractly interested in the sociological reality of modern society no instead it's a it's fundamentally a form of militant inquiry, a way of understanding the world so as to change it. It often uses methods which are very sensitive. It, basically, a lot of sociological methods slightly turn on their heads. So, for instance, uh, writing for Deliveroo is really an ethnography. Jamie Woodcox working the phones is also likewise an ethnography. But in my PhD, we also did semi-structured interviews. We did some group interviews that turned into a Marx reading group with workers at a Weatherspoons. Like, there's all kinds of different ways you can do this. The ultimate goal is always to solicit information about the balance of forces in the workplace that can be useful to workers. And even when, like nowadays, I'm an academic, I conduct all my kind of works inquiry stuff from the outside per se, there's this attempt to give ownership and control to workers themselves. And and at Notes from Below, we still, by and large, publish more workers than we do academics, which I think is a one of the um, the great advantages. I, I also think there is a degree to which, like, this was a submerged history of what working class movements have always done, having to understand the workplace, whether it was done under the name of workers' inquiry or not. I mean, Mao is doing stuff like this, where he goes and investigates the peasant movement in Hunan and starts like traveling around. And that's no particular endorsement of Mao in in any particularly direct way. But just to say that if one wants to act on the world, one needs to understand it. And workers' inquiry is this ongoing current. So I think workers' inquiry, by participating in it, we're recovering a subcurrent or subhistory of what it meant to be a militant in the 19th and 20th centuries, because often this stuff was the bread and butter of how you went and organised it. Organisation requires knowledge, it requires research. You can't really do one without the other. So you've established workers' inquiry pretty firmly by this point. Um, I suppose, yeah, the next question I had was about this approach you used to interpret your findings, uh, class composition analysis, which is this very geographical, very spatial approach. Maybe you could explain what, class composition analysis is by way of the specific class composition of delivery. Yeah, that sounds good. So class composition is, in essence, the object of investigation. When you're doing workers' inquiry, what you're trying to find out is how is the class composed here. So the first thing to say is that class composition, it's a set of possible parameters. Fundamentally, under this mode of production, there are certain classes that exist in certain relationships, right? So there are bosses, there are workers, There's the capital relation. There's all this stuff that Marx sets out in Capital Volume 1. The point of class composition isn't really to, like, change any of that, or it's certainly not to change any of that. It's rather to interpret what that means in a specific circumstance. So, like, how do these big-picture forces, how do these big-picture social relations become fundamentally embodied in one particular workplace context, and what implications that have for how we organise and and how we act in that context. So we talk about, for instance, the the technical composition of the class, right? We talk about three parts, really. The technical composition of the class is the first one. So this would be in production, what machinery is being used? What technology is being used? How does the labour process work? Is it cooperative or is it kind of siloised? Are workers formally employed or are they uh, self-employed? All the kind of questions that are actually profoundly similar to what Marx was asking back in his questionnaire in 1880, right? A lot of detail about how production is organised and how a group of workers is turned into like a working class involved in a labour process that produces value for capital. Then we also talk about social composition. So this is one of the moves that Notes and Blow made is to kind of increase the emphasis placed on social composition, which is to say that like 
workers don't just appear at the gates of the workplace each day and then work and then disappear again, right? There is a whole life that exists outside of that, which can have profound implications for the balance of forces between classes. So for instance, when a worker leaves work, are they kind of chased down by immigration enforcement at their home address? Or is there a network of food cooperatives that allows them to live below subsistence wages. One of my favourite examples of this is South Africa. The gold and diamond mines used to be basically worked on by people who came from the interior of Africa who migrated specifically for working in those mines and they were able to reproduce their labour power at costs far below the cost of subsistence in South Africa. So basically they could get paid incredibly low wages, then go home and those wages would be worth a lot more. So that created over time the specific relationship between races and and workers and bosses that led to the apartheid system, right? Like this idea that you had to have an external cheap source of labour that couldn't be fully integrated. Then political composition kind of emerges out of the other two. It's like, okay, so given that the labour process is set up this way, Given that society is set up in this way, how are workers reacting and what are they doing? So we look, for instance, at forms of whenever informal, localised, small-scale resistance tips over into collective organisation, that's what we're really interested in. So this is both like the formal stuff of trade unions and political parties, but it's also about whatever form of self-organisation emerges. You know, like if 10 workers refuse to do a job to the point that that job stops being done and, and instead that problem is resolved in a different way, you know, that would that would be a form of organisation that we're interested in. Fundamentally, the object of investigation here is working class self-organisation. It's not official politics, right? So, uh, yeah, the, the, the P in political composition is very much a small P. So what does this mean in delivery? Well, I mean, in the first instance, when you're looking at the technical composition of delivery, you see also kind of fa- factors jump out at you. One of the major ones is algorithmic management, right? Now, algorithmic management is the term we use to describe more or less the management of workers by relatively complex computer programs that can do things you would expect a human manager to do normally. So for instance, distributing work tasks or supervising task completion or monitoring how fast you're working, all of these kind of things. So algorithmic management isn't just part of the gig economy or the platform economy, but it is a big part of what makes that possible. It's kind of the automation of supervision in a way, right? It's like, so historically delivery work, you'd have a human dispatcher on the phone being like, okay, you've just done this delivery, now you need to go to this restaurant and do this delivery. And they would literally be telling you job by job what you should be going and doing. Instead, that's then replaced by this kind of automated supervisor who does the job instead. So that's one of the key factors of technical composition. In terms of social composition, you might well talk about migration, right? I think what's really fascinating often is the fact that a lot of the bulk of work done in these platforms is done by people who are part of the for, for once of a better term, like the urban surplus population. Like these are people who've been excluded from the labour market because of irregular migration status, racial discrimination, caring responsibilities, a whole number of things that push them out of the standard labour market. And they're kind of absorbed by the gig economy, by platforms like Deliveroo, and they form the core of that workforce that does the vast majority of the work because this is often the only way they have to access a wage. So in particular here, we might think about the role of the hostile environment. A lot of people who work for Deliveroo are renting accounts of people who have the right to work, but do not themselves have the right to work. So if you're an irregular migrant and you're renting an account, you say you're getting £6, £8 an hour, you're going to be shelling out a reasonable amount of that to the person who actually owns the account, and you'll take the rest home yourself. But here you can see how the border regime that makes migrants vulnerable if they don't have a particular status drives down wages, right? Because it drives down what people are willing to accept. It makes them vulnerable to hyper-exploitation. There's a, a French theorist called Emmanuel Terre who talks very persuasively about how this kind of stuff is like 
outsourcing to the global south, but without actually geographically moving production, right? You just bring the global south to you. You bring the externality inside it. It goes back to that apartheid example a bit, I think. And then finally, in terms of political composition, well, I mean, we see that over and over again, workers kick off in this context. So there's the Leeds Index of Platform Labour Protest, which is really, really interesting, a global tracker of protest incidents. And you basically see over time this huge ramping up from about 2017 of platform worker protest that comes basically out of nowhere. It's a really, really pronounced phenomenon that we've now seen. You know, if you were to track this globally, there were strikes in the UAE the other day, right? Like there aren't wildcat strikes in the UAE, but delivery workers, platform workers have been striking there. I remember back in 2017, like I said, I just finished my master's um, and I'm sitting there in the most boring office job in the world, like one of the real like brain dead. You can feel your brain leaking out your ears, that kind of job. And whilst I was sat there, 2017, the gig economy is obviously spreading. I'm interested in work. I'm interested in strike action. I'm interested in all these kind of things. And to that point, we hadn't really seen large scale action. And then bang, out of nowhere in London, we see a really big, well-organized strike by both Uber Eats and delivery workers. And I say at the start of the book, I rang up a trade unionist I know, and I was like, what's going on? He was on the ground. And I was like, this looks crazy. I'm seeing all these videos and stuff. Like, what, what's happening? And he just said to me, oh, I don't really know. <laughs> like, this is quite confusing to me. I'm not really sure. And to me, that was like, wow. I mean, we thought these workers were disempowered. We thought they didn't have much capacity to self-organize. We didn't think they were going to, you know, fight for better wages. And yet here they are, you know, there's 500 workers. They've surrounded their boss and they're screaming at him to demand better wages. You know, that's not how industrial relations happens in the UK most of the time. These are big, effective wildcat strikes, clearly led by migrant workers, clearly very militant. They're exerting a lot of workplace leverage and they've come out of absolutely nowhere and no one understands how that happened, right? So from that point onwards, I was like, well, I, I really, really, really want to understand how that process happened um, because it's potentially remarkable. And I think there is both significance for it as we now talk about uh, probably 4.4 million gig workers in the UK, platform workers in the UK. So a lot of people who work part or full-time on platforms. That's about 15% of the labour market for context. So both this is an expanding sector that is going to net in more and more people and we need to understand it. But also, when we're talking about algorithmic management, that is categorically spreading, right? And it's spreading really, really fast now. I've been saying this for years, like back in 2019, when we first launched the book, I was like, algorithmic management, it's spreading. And people were like, eh, is it? And then now after the pandemic, it's like profoundly clear. Zoom, for instance, has a, a, fa a facility built into it to monitor workers' Zoom calls and rate their effectiveness on Zoom calls if they're doing pitches for sales, right? Like this kind of stuff is coming not only to Amazon warehouses, but also to white collar workers. So I was really interested in seeing this management technology in, in one of its earlier iterations and starting to think through what possibilities it offered workers and, and how we could fight back against some of the more negative implications of it. That concludes the first part of this two-part breeze block. In the next episode, we discuss what lasting impact gig companies have had on the urban fabric and explore the dissonance that has developed between the tech vision of seamless, disembodied convenience and the exploitative labour process embodied in the experiences of gig workers themselves whose capacity for resistance against all odds is truly inspiring.